The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by APSA Africa Financial Markets Index, cultivating growth by providing a clearer understanding of the African markets. APSA is a registered FSP. Welcome to The Money Show. My name is Mateo Juaripe in for Bruce this evening. Thank you for joining us on this fine Tuesday. Uh, South Africa has had a long history of worker exploitation, especially in the mining sector. Tonight, we'll look at another class action lawsuit, this time in the coal mining industry, that is seeking to bring justice and compensation to mine workers who contracted coal mine dust lung disease after exposure to coal dust in the mines. We'll chat to Richard Spohr, human rights lawyer and founding director at Richard Spohr Incorporated Attorneys. The firm is filing the class action against nine Anglo-American mines. Then we get the latest from the story happening in Springs at Gold One. Uh, Looking specifically at the relationship between uh, the NUM and AMCU, both are mining um, you know, um, unions have had a relationship, especially after uh, what happened at the South Africa's uh, platinum belt. And uh, but recently, uh, especially with this gold mine story, uh, looking at whether that relationship has broken uh, with Ed Stoddard, journalist at Business Maverick. Well, if there's anything that famous brands can prove is that South Africans still love their fast food. Budgets are tight in the country, and eating out is not necessarily cheap. But the owners of Steers and Debonairs say uh, they recorded a 10% rise in revenues. The company also wants to venture into three other African locations, including Congo. Uh, CEO Darren Healy will join us tonight for that particular conversation. And I want to know from you, have you changed how you consume fast food? Are you uh, the person that still wants to go out with your family and still sit in a brick and mortar uh, fast food joint? Or do you just order in and uh, enjoy the food at home? You can call us at o- on 11 883 0702 or 021 446 0567. You can also WhatsApp us on 0727021702. We still have our usual features for Tuesday, our heroes and zeros, which is the best and the worst work in the advertising sector. Uh, Brendan Siri from Orchids and Onions will join us for that conversation. Then uh, some of the business stories coming out from the rest of the continent. Uh, Africa Business Focus with Victor Homieswana later on on the show. In our investment school today, we talk about the difference between value and growth investment strategies, how active managers are more likely to outperform uh, the market. Carl Wales, uh, portfolio manager at Flagship Asset Management, will join us for that conversation. That's all on The Money Show tonight. The Money Show with Moteo Kwaribe on 702. 702. We're still sticking with that story of 500 uh, National Union of Mine Worker members uh, being held hostage at Gold One or a sit-in, if you like. Uh, that closed-door negotiations are underway at the Gold One Mordefontein mine as a tense labor dispute continues to play out with concerns of an alleged hostage situation, as we heard from Eyewitness News earlier. We're joined now by Ed Stoddard, journalist and at a business maverick. Ed, just looking at this particular story that's been unfolding uh, this week, uh, we, we had a, a good relationship from the NUM and AMCU, especially in concluding uh, wage agreements for workers, especially after Margana and what happened there. Do you think that relationship has come to a head now? Uh, yes. Hi and good evening. Yeah, yeah, I would certainly think so. Um, and I would just back up there a bit. I mean, in the wake of Maracana, there was still very... <laughs> 
uh, intense rivalry between the two unions for several years. In fact, it was um, when it was sort of the defining development um, on the union front in the mining sector um, for for the course of most of a decade. Um, and so, in the past couple of years, the two unions uh, patched up their relations. Um, they seem to end their enmity. And they and and among other things, um, there have been a number of multi-year uh, wage agreements uh, struck um, in the platinum sector at Harmony Gold um, and various other mining companies um, that didn't involve any strike action and didn't involve any of the kind of punch-ups between NUM and AMCU, um, which uh, were a major source of unrest in the sector, and as a result also were a key concern among investors. Uh, one of the sort of underreported stories here has been that the decline in the rivalry between the two unions removed one of the red flags for investors in South Africa's mining sector. So the, the jostling for members and then, well, the, the non-jostling for members, if you, you want to call it that, and them getting together and working together at several mines in the country made uh, the situation more stable, if you like. But uh, with this happening this week, it's going to raise those red flags that you te- you're talking about. Well, absolutely. I mean, uh, NUM is accusing AMCU of taking over 500 of its members hostage, uh, which includes 46 uh, female miners. Um, and, uh, and there are concerns, you know, about their, about everybody's safety, but, uh, you know, especially the women miners and there are, um, and so to have something like this erupt and something so dramatic, um, and the kind of allegations would suggest that, uh, um, that all the work that's been done to sort of patch up relations between two unions is, is now unraveling and it's unraveling at Springs in the East Rand and it could be an isolated incident, but you know, basically you do have top numb leadership and top AMCU leadership throwing barbs at each other now. And I think that bodes ill for the, uh, for the water mining sector. Um, and Amku is saying some of the workers are looking to move uh, to their union out of uh, the NUM, uh, while the NUM has classified this as a hostage situation. Uh, we're obviously having heard uh, from some of the miners that are there underground, but um, should this fallout uh, go into the sort of violence that we've seen before, what would this mean for Gold One, but also for the sector? Well, I mean, it would just be very, it would obviously be very bad for the sector, be very bad for Gold One because, you know, it becomes, you know, extremely uh, disruptive first and foremost. I mean, it's, you know, uh, uh, people's, people's lives and limbs are at risk, but also then, you know, it, it, it obviously um, is not good for productivity and that kind of things um, uh, on the mines to um, have these, uh, um, uh, to have the, to have this rivalry kind of reignited. Um, and it's interesting that, that, you know, AMCO is claiming that it has members that want to move to NUM. It's all very difficult to tell, right? Because none of us have been able to speak to any of the miners who are underground. But uh, this kind of, this this kind of the playbook that we've seen before, uh, about a decade ago when AMCO kind of exploded on the, on the platinum belt. And so there's almost kind of a sense of deja, of deja vu uh, unfolding here.
Hopefully those negotiations would lead to an amicable resolution between uh, both the unions and their members. Uh, Richard Spohr, human rights, uh, sorry, Ed Stornard rather, journalist at Business Maverick, unpacking that story for us, happening at Gold One in Springs. Uh, more than 500 mine workers remain underground and they've been there since Sunday. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by APSA Corporate and Investment Banking. APSA CIB proudly brings you the Africa Financial Markets Index. APSA is a registered FSP. Going into this story now, Richard Spohr Attorneys has launched an application to for certification for a class action against nine mining companies owned by the Anglo-American Group. Now, this is the second in a series of class actions launched by the RSI team to bring justice and compensation to mine workers who contracted coal mine dust lung disease after exposure to coal dust in the mines. We'll find out how many workers will be represented in this particular class action and what type of negligence uh, these companies uh, showed uh, towards their workers uh, during that time. Uh, we're joined now by Richard Spohr, the human rights lawyer and founding director at Richard Spohr Incorporated Attorneys. Richard, just looking at this particular class action, I know there was one in August as well uh, involving other mining companies. Uh, how many workers have you gotten to be part of this particular class action and what um, you know, uh, grievances are you going for? Well, um, we have selected about 20 individuals as class representatives because they cover the companies and they cover the period that's relevant to these proceedings. But behind that, there are several tens of thousands of former coal mine workers who were employed by Anglo-American and their subsidiaries on their coal mines um, since 1965 and um, who have contracted occupational lung diseases associated with their exposure to coal dust um, while working underground in Anglo's mines. And uh, looking at the number that you're looking at, I know you're saying you have 24, the class action. Have you, do you have any form of research around the number of workers that were affected during the time and what scope of, uh, uh, is this case looking at? Hmm. We don't, have close detail, but we do know that Anglo has consistently been one of the biggest coal mine um, miners in the country over a very, very long period. They started mining coal in South Africa in 1917, and they've been the major supplier of coal to uh, uh, for export and to ESCOM for many, many decades. So they're steeped in it, and they um, are a big chunk. Of, of the tens of thousands of workers who worked on the South African, migrant workers primarily, who worked on the South African coal mines. We saw a similar case in terms of the fatal lung disease, silicosis and tuberculosis. This time it was gold miners and that uh, received a big payout of about 5 billion rand for workers. Uh, have you quantified what this will mean for the workers? Uh, should uh, you, you win this case? We haven't, but um, we are proposing, um, I suppose, as a starting point in a in a discussion and engagement with the industry, that the uh, silicosis settlement um, serve as a kind of a, a baseline for any accommodation, and that 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 baseline quantifies the range of damages of 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 workers con- 
con- having regard to their degree of disability in a range of about 50,000 to 500,000 rand per worker. And we expect there are several tens of thousands of workers who are eligible to receive such compensation. So taken together, you know, this amounts to a very substantial claim. Um, and, you know, we are hopeful that you know, we can achieve um, that objective. And just lastly, can you share with us some of the uh, case cases or, or, or miners who have come forward and, and brought forward their stories in terms of how uh, working at these particular mines have has firstly uh, jeopardized their health and how it's affected their lives? Well, it's been devastating for many of them. Um, you know, occupational lung disease associated with the inhalation of coal dust, um, coal mine dust, um, is, 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 is permanent, it's irrever- irreversible, and it's progressive. So we have clients who've worked on these mines for as little as 10 years who um, have contracted a disease, who are disabled, who lost their jobs, who lost their employment, um, who are unable to support their families because they're too ill um, and are essentially damned to die a slow and lingering death um, in, in, in consequence of Anglo's reckless and negligent exposure to really dangerous levels of dust um, in their coal mines. Levels of dust that they knew were likely to cause workers to become ill um, and to contract the kinds of diseases we're talking about. So um, for, for, for the workers themselves, um, it's a long, lingering and painful death and for their dependents, it's years, decades of poverty and hardship associated with their parents, their breadwinners' inability to support and sustain them as they would otherwise have been able to do if Anglo hadn't exposed them to these dangerous and unhealthy conditions underground. And Richard, just before we let you go, what would be the next process legally uh, in terms of this class action? Well, this application is an application for certification of the class action. So we're asking the court um, to approve the class action. Um, We're hopeful that Anglo um, will not oppose the certification. Uh, We believe that a class action is the best and most efficient and effective way to address this legacy. Um, and that it's in everybody's interest, including the companies, that, that we proceed by way of class action. The alternative, of course, yeah. is hundreds of individual claims, and that's not in anybody's interest. You know, the, the cost, the hardship, the delay associated with that kind of litigation is just overwhelming. So we are fairly hopeful. We've got a good insight and understanding into the culture of Anglo, right. which, to their credit, is... Uh, a fairly progressive one, um, certainly amongst uh, South African coal mining companies, uh, mining companies generally, I suppose, Anglo stands um, pretty up um, on on the levels of social responsibility. All right, we are pretty keen on this particular uh, case and uh, the process will be definitely following up on it. Uh, that was uh, Richard Spohr, uh, human rights lawyer and founding director at Richard Spohr Incorporated Attorneys that a class action launched against nine Anglo-American group mines. The Money Show. The Markets.
Let's get a good reading of the markets now with Wayne McCurry from Wealth and Investments at First National Bank. Looking at the markets today, Wayne, uh, the all share up by 478 points, up more than a half a percent, looking uh, much better than it did yesterday, especially with those mining shares rebounding. Very much so. I mean, the market actually but quite nicely in the afternoon. It, it, it opened sharply and then it sort of like faded away and it was actually negative. And then a strong recovery in the afternoon led by the industrial shares, which were up about two and a half percent. Your take on famous brands, are they saying that, um, you know, the revenues are up 10 percent, but that's a little lower than they said five months ago when the revenues are up 15 percent. So uh, business conditions are quite tough uh, during this time. Look, they've got quite, as you said, quite a nice revenue growth. They increased the dividends as well, but the earnings were actually down. And as you mentioned earlier on, it's the actual cost of the input. It's the load shedding cost. But then really interesting, you know, interesting, the insurance costs went up hugely as well. You know, the one thing about short-term insurers, when they encounter a huge claim in any one particular sector for whatever reason, they adjust the premiums, you know, within a year, and they start charging the people, you know, a higher rate. So, I mean, uh, Femmes Band specifically mentioned the insurance costs have gone up quite dramatically. Do you think then it would be a great time for the owners of Wimpy and Debonairs to venture out into other, um, you know, locations on the continent uh, as they have announced today? Yes, I think it is. Famous brands, obviously, we know they went to the UK and didn't do well there, but their Africa operations and their Middle East operations, although relatively small compared to South Africa, actually do quite nicely. So I think to branch out further into Africa, at least they know the markets quite well, and I think that's a good idea. I'm starting to enjoy the rand at that 18 rand mark, but we've seems to have as regressed again, uh, down by half a percent against the US dollar. Any uh, reasons why uh, the local units is being pressed today? I don't think there's any particular reason that I know of, but I think we're going to sit at this 1850, 19, I don't know, 20, somewhere around there for a while. We've got to wait for proper definitive direction on interest rates, specifically overseas. When are they going to come down? When is inflation reached an acceptable level in other parts of the world? And then we should get some interest rate cuts, which should lead to economic growth and some revival in the commodity cycle. And then the rand should start strengthening. So I'm quite optimistic on the rand in a two to three year view. Fairway is probably still below 17 against the dollar. And we forget the rand does this every time there's a commodity down cycle. The rand collapses. We all want to jump off a cliff. It's never going <laughs> to recover again. And it actually does recover. The rand is very, very volatile. But over long periods of time, it does two things. It depreciates by our inflation differentials between ourselves and our major trading partners. Now, those are actually in our favor at the moment, surprisingly enough. And uh, it follows the commodity cycle. We just happen to be in the down part of the commodity cycle now. All right, that was uh, Wayne McCurry from Wealth and Investments at First National Bank. Of course, some of the biggest winners today, Process, up uh, close to 3%, with Advertake also up more than 3%. Anglo was up 2.5% today on the market. The Money Show will give you all the tools you need to navigate the complicated world of economics and commerce, even if you're not a numbers person. The Money Show with Motel Paripe. 6 to 8 p.m. Making money makes sense. On 702 and Cape Talk.
When it comes to inverters, nowadays everybody needs one. But with so many options, it's easy to get left in the dark. Don't stress, Chase Technologies is here to shed some light. Chase inverters are powered by Mega Revo with a five-year warranty. And their lithium batteries have a full 10-year guarantee, not pro rata like others on the market. Best of all, Chase is a Bidvest company, so you know your warranty is secure. Get your Chase products from Voltex stores nationwide. Chase Technologies proudly Bidvest. You're with Motel Paribe on 702 and Cape Talk. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by the APSA Africa Financial Markets Index, cultivating growth by providing a clearer understanding of the African markets. APSA is a registered FSP. Well, they've done well in our market, uh, making sure that a lot of people can go into tourism business, but also making sure that a lot of visitors have really cool and nice places to stay. Airbnb are coming out today to say they're going to be pledging more than 500,000 US dollars to the continent in order to make the tourism businesses more accessible and going through to a sustainable tourism. Velma uh, Corcoran uh, joins me now, uh, is the regional lead, uh, Middle East Africa at Airbnb. Uh, Velma, let's look at this particular fund. What are you looking to achieve with it, especially with the successes that you've had in the continent? Good evening. So maybe I'll take a bit of a step back. So last week we announced a report on Airbnb's impact in South Africa, where we saw that we doubled our contribution to GDP. Um, from 2019 to 2022, um, 23 billion um, rands in the South African economy. And really the pledge is about thinking through how can we scale that impact across the continent. So today I'm actually calling you from an event that we're hosting at Victoria Yards in Joburg. If you listen loudly, you can actually probably hear Bongaziwe with Mabandla in the background at the end of the event. And the event was really about how do we bring thought leaders, innovators, policymakers from across Africa together to think through how do we, post-pandemic, how do we accelerate more inclusive and sustainable growth across the continent? And as part of that, we've made a pledge, which is really about our commitment. Um, And as you mentioned, there's a um, $500,000 fund, which will go to African countries, um, to organizations and NGOs, to, to support the ecosystem for inclusive and sustainable tourism. We're also committing to working with African governments on the continent to help them with tools and data so that they can, A, um, really leverage some of the low-hanging fruit and also support them in kind of policy solutions that can support more sustainable short-term rentals. For somebody who wants to access this particular fund, are you looking for somebody who's already a host with Airbnb or somebody looking to get into the business? And how do you help them, uh, you know, uh, get into the tourism business, especially sustainably? So the fund has two components. So the first component is actually the money. And that is geared for NGOs and development organizations that would support things like digital access, skills development, so broadly supporting the ecosystem. But then what we've also pledged to do is we run a program called the Airbnb Entrepreneurship Academy, which is focused on how do we um, support hosts from, it's a skills development program for, focused on 
How do we get more hosts from underserved resource communities, rural communities, township communities? And we want to take that program to, it's already in South Africa and Kenya, and we want to take that to another five African countries. You've spoken about the economic effects that you've had on the South African markets. Let's just uh, look a bit broadly at those. When you first arrived here in South Africa, it was a market, of course, um, that you hadn't tried out. What some of the lessons have you picked up from especially hosts in the country and how different are they from the rest of the world? Um, so, I mean, I don't, I think there's more similarities rather than differences for hosts across, you know, around the world. And I think, what we have here is we have a really vibrant and thriving host community. So, you know, Airbnb, as I mentioned, supported 23,000, um, 23 billion rand in the South African economy, supported 50,000 jobs. But I think what we've really seen is that of that, hosts on Airbnb in South Africa earned 4 billion rand. Um, and that's really because our hosts are saying to us that they're hosting to, to meet the rising cost of living. And that rising cost of living in terms of properties in the country, uh, what would you like to see uh, on the continent in terms of Airbnb, the growth that you'd like to see, the areas that you'd like to cover that you haven't already, and some of the uh, you know tourism uh, development that you can uh, achieve on the continent? So, I mean, Africa is an untapped market for us. Um, you know, Airbnb is a young company. Um, we've only been around for 13, 14 years. You know, but in that time, we've got 7 million listings on the platform. We've got a um, 7 million plat- uh, listings. We've had 1.5 billion guests all time. In the next 10 years, we want to double that. A lot of our markets in Europe and the US are already very mature. And we see that, um, you know, the next frontier of growth is going to come from Africa. And we really want to be able to support that. You know, to date, you know, we've got some sort of core markets. So South Africa, Morocco, Kenya, Mauritius are big markets for us. But we really would like to see, you know, Airbnb growing in, in more places around the continent. Well, Airbnb is a digital tech company. And of course, a big uh, issue with that is always the skills that make sure these uh, tech companies are still, um, you know, working out. Uh, This particular fund, are you going to have a key focus on also developing the coders and some of the people at the back end of uh, the website that you uh, currently have? Yeah, I mean, I would love to see, you know, some of the fund going to that and actually really thinking about how do we promote STEM skills across um, Africa. How do we have more coders? How do we have more developers? So that, you know, in time, you know, we can have some of our, you know, development skills here rather than having to rely on, you know, the US or Europe for that, 100%. And beyond the fund, what is next for Airbnb on the continent? So, you know, the fund, I mean, the fund is part of a larger pledge. As I mentioned, you know, we want to expand our outreach to working with another 10 countries on working with them to identify what are some of the tourism opportunities. We want to expand our academy, so we want to go hosting in these, these countries. And so, you know, the, the focus for the next year, for the next two years, will be to really deliver on the pledge and then to see where we go from there. You know, last night, um, we had 
the Africa Host Spotlight um, here in Johannesburg, where we had we recognised some of the best hosts across the continent for you know the best design stay, the best rural stay, um, best um, nature stay, and I've been so encouraged by like the quality and the diversity of hosting that we have. We have a woman from from Ghana. Her name is Nala, and she hosts. The most, she's in the most beautiful Art Deco home in Accra, and she won Best Design Stay. And I think really what we want to do is sort of take these stories of these hosts and get them to inspire other people. Because you know when we, you know when we had the awards last night, I really it was to celebrate some of the best of hosting on Airbnb in Africa. But I really feel like it was part of like the best of hosting in the world. Um, and I think our host, because, you know, when you stay with a host on Airbnb, you're connected to a local, you make a friend, you hear yeah. their story. And I think that's also key to, you know, changing perceptions about travel in Africa and really kind of fostering connection and belonging. All right. That was uh, Velma Cochran, regional lead in Middle East and Africa at Airbnb, talking to us about a fund that Airbnb is bringing forward to the rest of the continent at around 500,000 US dollars in order to boost the tourism business in the sector. Motel Paribe on The Money Show. 6 to 8 p.m. And uh, thank you for joining us on The Money Show. Uh, looking now at Famous Brands, the company releasing first half-year results. Uh, the company that owns Mug and & Bean and Fisherway is really saying it reported uh, first half results that were decent, if you could say that. And, and last five months of the year, uh, they'd reported a 15% rise in revenue, but this time around saying it rose by 10%, saying business conditions aren't particularly easy. Company having to pay for diesel and other finance charges. We're now joined by Darren Healy, the CEO of Famous Brands. And Daryl, uh, Darren, rather, looking at the uh, particular results, what number can you give us in terms of that spend on diesel? Good evening, Matera. Yeah, look, it depends on which aspect of the business you look at, but roughly on the supply chain, it was just over 11 million rand uh, versus a comparative around, of around three in, in, in the prior year for the same, same comparable period. That, that's just on the manufacturing side of the business. Uh, revenue rose 10%, about 3.9 billion in the six months to end August, but profits uh, fell by about a fifth to 220 million rand as higher finance costs and input costs were hurting the business. Uh, some of the uh, costs were, you know, you helping out franchisees uh, during this particular period. What help did they, uh, did they need and what did you offer? Yeah, look, some of that is deceiving in that the, the revenue was there, but the, the profit was, propped up last year with a single payment around the GBK liquidation dividend. Uh, but in terms of our normal operating environment, so, so that was 75 million rand, which would make a significant difference. But in terms of our operating uh, profit, you are, are correct. We have assisted franchisees to the tune uh, of 11.6 million rand on the leading brand side to try and offset some of their costs of diesel and you know, to keep their trading hours in check uh, so that they are available Given the cost of alternative power solutions, I mean, that's a, a small price to pay, we think, in our business. 
I mean, let's zero in on the food. Uh, you are a food business and you have to get uh, from your suppliers all sorts of ingredients to make sure that you can, uh, you know, give all the wonderful plates uh, to your customers. Uh, looking at the chicken eggs business uh, that's been hit by the bird flu, obviously there's going to be a price differential with that. Has that hit the business yet? And also looking at, you know, the cost of coffee at this particular time, how much have you spent over the period? Yeah, so the results talk to the end of August. So the, the avian flu issue hasn't, hasn't cycled through in these numbers. We definitely uh, have seen at restaurant level, you know, franchise partners are paying significantly more for eggs and availability is, is erratic. Uh, the chicken pricing hasn't necessarily filtered through to the same degree or at the same level, uh, but that is starting to, to filter through. But I think that will probably be a little bit easier to manage than on, on the egg side. Uh, right now, you know, coffee uh, was certainly expensive in the period, and that relates not only to the coffee price globally, which has settled down now, but more to the rand dollar, uh, which during the period under review was was under some pressure. Uh, and of course, when you're buying a dollar commodity uh, at that particular time, you, you're going to be paying significantly more in rand. And the agricultural sector in terms of potatoes hasn't had the best harvest season. Uh, did that affect the uh, frozen chips and some of the chips that you use for, for your meals? Yeah, it affected availability. I mean, pricing is also under pressure, but that is also some of that has come through post the 1st of September. So we, we're feeling that now, and it's probably at its peak right now in terms of potato pricing. Not just on frozen chips, but steers use fresh chips as an example. And they, you know, the franchise partners felt that in terms of, of pricing. So it's been a particularly difficult period uh, and still is, but that was at the latter end of the period. But availability is also probably more of a challenge than price. You know, a bit like the, the egg scenario, you, you know, you, you pay for it, but you just can't get it. Uh, and the same on, on potatoes. It has been a particularly difficult harvest. And we also do get from uh, the sun south in the Western Cape, which, as you know, was quite hard hit by the floods down in the Western Cape. Now, you have about 2,500 uh, restaurants in your South African business. Do, what's the trend like? Are people still, uh, you know, sitting down and having meals or are they now using more the apps and the Uber deliveries to get the meals to, to their doors? Yeah, the opposite. I think the, the apps Uber trend is probably trending downwards. Yeah, I mean, there's still growth there, but the trend versus what it was and people are definitely getting out and about more. Uh, as we call it, bums on seats uh, is a lot more prevalent. And people, for a variety of reasons, are getting out and spending time in restaurants and out and about just generally. So I, I think the one trend has swapped around for other people are getting out, partly because of load shedding, I think, is, a, is, a, is driving occasions. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, we had a particularly difficult winter, so I think people are also enjoying the good weather now. But in, in, during the period, even under review, you know, even with a cold winter, people were still getting out and about, uh, particularly in the daytime. You also have around 311 uh, outlets in the rest of Africa and the Middle East, but you're still showing an appetite for expansion. Tell us more about that. You know, we are always optimistic about Africa. It's not easy, uh, and we are very clear and focused on a narrow market, so we're not looking to, to you know, be spread across the whole of Africa. You know, we have various opportunities within our model because we have franchise, license, and company store opportunities, so three different business models. Uh, and the three new markets we're talking about, you know, two of them are franchise, one of them is licensed. So we are able to go into Africa with the support of a franchise partner or a licensee in those cases 
and they understand the local market and how to navigate it. So you know, we, we, we like those markets because people love our brands. They like the taste of our product, and our product resonates in those particular markets. And out-of-home consumption is growing not just in South Africa, but also in Africa. And are these markets where it would be particularly uh, difficult to repatriate some of your earnings? Um, no, not necessarily. Uh, I, I mean, I think that there are markets where that's difficult. We haven't really got any cash traps currently. Uh, so, no, they, 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 they shouldn't be. But, I mean, you know, one is always cautious that that is a, a difficulty to address uh, in Africa. And looking at your war chest with this expansion, I know it's going to be a, a cautious one into three other uh, markets in the rest of the uh, uh, continent, including the Democratic Republic of Congo. But how big is your war chest to, to venture out into those markets? So those, those markets, two of them are franchised, one of them are, are licensed. So we wouldn't be putting capital into those particular markets. I mean, there are markets that we have put capital in Africa and, and, and would continue to, but these Three new markets are as they're either franchised or licensed, so we, we wouldn't be looking to put capital into them. We'd be putting operational expertise, RP, sweat capital in, but, but not uh, capital. And what have, you, uh, have these particular results told you about the South African consumer, which I think is around 90% of your business? Um, you know, is the consumer still going through a tough time with the higher interest rates and high inflation, or are you seeing them still spending uh, despite times being so tough? Look, there's no doubt the consumer's under pressure. I mean, that, that is you know, undeniable. But we've been pleasantly surprised at how resilient the consumer has been. And it seems that they are spreading their basket differently. And, you know, occasions um, are, are still something that they would spend money on. I think they must be sacrificing something else. You know, they're certainly not going overboard, but we, we are still seeing that they're preserving that occasion. So, you know, we're, we've been quite surprised and pleased, obviously, that, that we're still getting a share of the wallet. And your forecast for into uh, the rest of 2024, you're seeing a rebound of the South African consumer, especially if we do get uh, interest rate cuts uh, maybe in the first half of the year. Look, I think it will be challenging. Uh, we're not expecting an easing of the situation and, and a lot does depend on load shedding. So load shedding is a shadow that hangs over because it costs consumers money. Uh, it creates different different. Behavior. So I think if the, the news that's coming out that the picture is looking rosier is, is true, then that, that would be a, a, a windfall for all of us. So I think their, their load shedding does make a difference and it's going to make a difference on the cost structure. So hopefully that eases, then, then we're probably more optimistic around H2. Well, uh, load shedding is still one of the big effects on South African businesses. Darren Healy, the CEO of Famous Brands, Africa's largest restaurant franchiser. The Money Show with Motel Haripe on 702. Let's walk the talk. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by the APSA Africa Financial Markets Index, cultivating growth by providing a clearer understanding of the African markets. APSA is a registered FSP. Time to get into the best and the worst work now from the advertising sector in our Heroes and Zeros feature. Uh, Brendan Seary from Orchids and Onions, of course, the editor there, uh, will be looking at some of the best work here. But we're going to be focusing today on the ugly cousin of the creative industry being that PR, uh, looking at some of the work coming out of there. Uh, Brendan, welcome again to The Money Show. Evening, how are you? Uh, great to hear from you. Look, uh, there's been a lot of uh, dominant 
uh, display on TV, on the adverts, uh, with regards to the, uh, the Springboks, of course, currently in the World Cup final that's to be played on Saturday. A lot of ad- advertisers taking advantage of all the hype around them. But as a, a brand that is just uh, a good... Um, uh, a display for a country like South Africa around the world. Uh, it's really, really doing the job again as it did in 2019. I mean, uh, some of the players that are playing in India for the Proteas saying they appreciate the fact that all the attention is on the Springboks and they having uh, a much easier tournament without all of the pressure. But looking at using sports, um, you know, as as as, ad- as advertising as one of the brands that you can use for good PR. What have you uh, seen as an assessment uh, with this past tournament? Yeah, I, I think one has to also be honest, as I, I was looking at, um, you know, one of the people that's behind the whole marketing and advertising business um, was a guy called Edward Louis Bernays. Um, many credit him as being the father of public, public relations, but effectively what he did is he looked at propaganda now, propaganda has a lot of negative connotations, um, you know, connected with forcing people to do things that they don't want to, to do. And it's generally used in a sort of a political or a military sense to get people to go and throw away their lives for nothing. But he recognized that you could turn propaganda um, into a very, very strong marketing tool. And that basically was, was one of the, the parts of the genesis of modern-day advertising, and it is one of the most successful business tools, if not the most successful business tool of all time. And if you have a look at what's being done with the Springboks, a lot of it is is pretty conventional sort of advertising using um, the players themselves. And this particular tournament, the World Rugby World Cup tournament, has seen more of that than anything in the past. But what I particularly like, because... Um, it is not only effective marketing, um, it's also a form of propaganda. And as I said, it should be actually in a museum for nation building. Is the campaign, the general overall campaign, stronger together, which takes the ordinary uh, players and gets them to look at life, you know, through their own words. And, And that's very powerful stuff. And I think you'll see the results of it. Um, I think it was quite astounding after the, the win on, on Saturday night to see how much public celebration there was. I know that it doesn't apply to everybody, but I think there's just a little bit more of that feeling of that we had back in 95 that this kind of sport can unite us. And this particular campaign really does hit the spot, and, and it's a reminder. It was um, done as a promo by DSTV. Um, for their rugby coverage. But it's also a reminder that advertising can be a very powerful nation-building tool as well. And I think I, I don't think anyone can watch watch any of that, any of those executions of Stronger Together and not at some point feel a bit of goosebumps or a bit of a yeah. lump in the throat. And then the kind of the patriotism shines through, I think. I mean, I think the modern player, especially with the national teams, um, has to be... Uh, aware of you know the happenings in the country has to be aware of daily life of the people that they call supporters and i think it comes through with the box uh the way they speak about the country conditions faced in the country and also uh just saying thank you to to all the supporters uh you know making them feel that they're part of the process of being in the world cup i think that that's absolutely right when you watch these videos 
this is a team. This is a, a team of people who, who are friends as well. And if you think about where South African rugby has come from, from the rows about quotas, the racism, the bad performances, this is something to celebrate. I mean, in fact, if you look at it as a metaphor for South Africa, this is what we could be if we put our minds to it um, and we just check the, ba- the, the, the baggage of racism at the door. We do that then this is what we can do. And I think really when you look at that, any of those executions, you think, you know, this makes me proud. It makes me feel um, that these guys are they're doing it for us. Um, and I think despite the nerve-wracking last two results, I think every a lot of people are going to be watching this coming Saturday. And I, I, I do think if we do win it for the fourth record time, you'll see an outpouring of patriotism we probably haven't seen since 95. And then I earlier called PR the ugly duckling and that I guess would make uh, advertising and marketing the prettier siblings. Um, why do you say this uh, in your assessment? Well, I think the the, the reality is that um, particularly these days, a lot of um, businesses do recognize the value of PR. I'm not denying it because it's it's what they call in the military a force multiplier. So if you spend X amount of rand on a campaign, what you spend on public relations will be far more effective in terms of return on investment than any advertising campaign if it's done properly. Um, but at the same time, and I do feel a lot for PR people, um, a lot of the clients these days are, are run by um, bean counters rather than marketers and and a lot of them allow their egos to get in, in, in the way. And whereas your public relations should be run by some, someone like Bernays who understands how to grab emotions and how to tell a story. And so often I see public relations press releases across my desk that, um, as one of my colleagues often says, who cares? Uh, it's a waste of time. It's a waste of effort. Um, and the only people satisfied by the release would be the, with the executives who who signed off on it because there's such a lot of drill. And what occasionally I do is I play what I call the PR bulldust bingo game. So in other words, you imagine yourself with a, a bingo card and you imagine all of the cliches that they that the PR people often toss out into releases. And you read the release and just find out how many of them you can check off. Um, and I had a ball with one of them last week. And let's look at that particular uh, onion or zero for this week being Kelanova. Of course, uh, during their they split with Kellogg's, uh, the fast-moving consumer goods company uh, that's going to be, you know, uh, under the name Kelanova, releasing a statement saying they're going on their own, um, they're going to find their own market and, you know, thrive as their own brand. But what did you find was so bad about this uh, PR approach? It's it's just, it's not bad. It's just that there's so many cliches. So, for example, there was a quote, excited to enter this new era, unquote. Then the companies would be better positioned to focus on the distinct, on its distinct strategic priorities with financial targets that best fit its own markets and opportunities. And then it goes on, we will execute with increased agility and operational flexibility, enabling a more focused allocation of capital and resources in a manner consistent with those strategic priorities. Uh, you know, it's like a PowerPoint presentation. You know, you're trying to get someone to get interested in. Um, and then it goes on to say, we, our vision is to become the world's best performing snacks 
lead powerhouse, unleashing the full potential of our differentiated brands and our passionate people. Um, and it goes on and on like that. And it's just one of those what we call MEGO, M-E-G-O, my eyes glaze over. As soon as you start reading that, you go, well, I don't care. And, and, and I think that's not the fault of the PR company in this case. It's the fault of you know, Kalanova and their American bosses. They must have loved that. And, you know, you know, bean counters loved strategic priorities and financial targets. Yeah, and all the buzzwords that been. Yeah, instead of saying, you know, why don't we find someone who's worked for the company for 40 or 50 years um, and who loves it and, and, and just tell their story. And through that story, you can engage people. Um, I very seldom see any good storytelling in, in public relations. And that's, I think, Edward Bernays would be spinning in his grave if he could see that kind of thing, what, what passes for, for public relations, because it doesn't, it's supposed to change attitudes and, and entice people to do things they wouldn't otherwise do. And all this entices me to do is just, you know, close the email or shred the piece of paper that it arrived in. So, yeah, I think we've, um, PR people need to look at themselves and, and think, you know, our business is about telling stories in such a way that our clients um, benefit and our clients come out with a good reputation or they, they, they intrigue people. And I, there's just not, I've seen very, very little of that these days in public relations. I mean, we have the similar gripe with uh, PR statements coming in as journalists and trying to uh, make sure that you find the story within the statement. So I I quite understand where you're coming from. Uh, But looking uh, holistically, uh, do you think that the PR industry then should uh, be as tough on clients as maybe advertisers have uh, have become to say, look, we get what you're saying, we get your viewpoint, but in order to get through to the people that you're targeting, this is what you need to do. That's an excellent question. And I, as I say, I do feel for, I've, I have friends and colleagues in PR and they've been made to do ridiculous things by the client because the client won't listen. Um, and I, particularly when it comes to modern PR should position the client as a facilitator, not front and center, not in the spotlights. Um, you're, say, for example, a, a car company, you lend your vehicles to a charity and then you that the story is about what those vehicles were used to do and how those vehicles facilitated a change in someone's life. Um, so the vehicles in the background, it's not about the vehicles um, appointments, you know, what, it, what it's uh, special features, it's color, it's power. It's about what it did for someone. And I think that's where um, PR companies, look, some of them don't realize that anyway because they haven't, they don't know how to tell stories. And I think that's the biggest problem in PR. But even the ones that do often get overruled by the bean counters who want to see everything in the first paragraph and especially the marketing manager's name or the, the CEO's name. And ordinary people don't care about that. They care about the story of your brand. They don't care who your CEO is. Most of them don't know. They want to know about what your brand does that will touch their emotions and um, and you can even do it in financial PR. You could have done this with with Kellogg's and Kellogg's is just such an ancient brand it's and, been and in it's our been kitchens part of everybody's. Years, and I'm sure a lot of people resonate with it. So those stories definitely uh, could have been told. That was Brendan Siri, uh, the editor at Orchids and Onions talking about the heroes and zeros today. Uh, today's hero, the Springboks and DSTV on the Stronger Together campaign uh, while our zero was uh, Kelanova with the cliches in the PR statement. Thank you so much. 
The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by APSA Corporate and Investment Banking. APSA CIB proudly brings you the Africa Financial Markets Index. APSA is a registered FSP. The Money Show. The Africa Business Report. African Business Focus with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by SAA, the ones who flies SAA's growing route network, now flying to Blantyre, Lilongwe, Vic Falls and Vindok. Let's get into some of the best business stories coming out of the continent in our Africa Business Focus with Victor Khomieswana, the author of Africa Bounces Back and the Marketing and Communication Executive Director at the University of Limpopo. Uh, Victor, welcome again uh, to The Money Show. Uh, Nice of you to join us. Looking at exploration, I'm always excited when there's an exploration story, especially in Africa. (laughs) But at the same time, I always worry about whether uh, the uh, people on the continent, people in the countries will be benefactors. Good evening, Mutel. You are right. And and I like you raising the the sustainability issue because the, the concept now is resource nationalism. That if your country has resources, those resources don't have to be the curse. We have talked about the resource curse, countries like Nigeria, countries like the DRC, which are very rich in resources, but unfortunately, the resource became the, the driver of civil war and conflict and strife and blood diamonds and all that. Namibia, as you know, is a tourism economy, is fishing, it is it is it is a it is a uranium economy, but oil because it's part of the west coast the atlantic almost is is an oil gold mine and this time is total energies and and this venus field is supposed to be worth four billion barrels of oil that could be drilled and and whether you're talking Mosul bay in the west coast of africa or nigeria or gabon it's just oil and oil and more oil in the atlantic ocean but the four billion barrels are the interest of Total Energy is a French company. BP is also in there. And and the $100 million project is for them to go out and, and, and try and make it come to reality. Total Energies, you remember, Motel, is in in Mozambique as well, the, the Cabo Delgado conflict. If you remember President Emmanuel Macron coming to South Africa a year ago or two and going to Mozambique on from there, he was courting President Ramaphosa, who is part of the SADC Troika at the West part of Sadek Troika at the time to to make sure that they secure the the stable the peace agreement in in the northern parts of Mozambique. But it's not only the east coast of Africa that Total Energies has an interest in; it also has an interest on the west coast in Namibia. And this time it is it is trying to just beef up his portfolio and and let's hope that as you say namibians will benefit luckily namibia has only two million or so people and it shouldn't be a difficult deal to make sure that they get a a, a share of these of these resources but the the agreement here is that this contract that they are working on is to activate this contract and get a share of the four billion barrels of oil well, the world is saying uh, it's moving to far greener energies, but if there are these discoveries and there are economic <laughs> opportunities, then I'm sure any country would take them up. Listen, if you've listened to 
people in South Africa talk about just transition and Minister Gwede Mantashe, who is not very, not a big fan of this just transition, he says, we have coal reserves here, we've got to make them work. The same story applies. As long as you are mindful of the impact, the environmental impact of your petroleum or fossil fuels, energy sources, you should be fine. You can't just walk away from them. And therefore, it is important that Namibia does not abandon fossil fuels if they can take advantage of that. But it's in the hands of these multinationals. Total Energies knows about this. It's heavily invested in greener energies as well, Motel. So you're not that far off the mark. They are balancing now. Everyone does that. BP does that. Caltech does that. Everybody who's in fossil fuels is trying to maximize and get the return on their investment into the drilling and exploration that they have done. But they are already having a lot of ammunition to make sure that they can compete on the green energy front. Let's go to aviation now. Kenya Airways are looking to have a code sharing agreement with Lufthansa. Exactly. They are using a code-sharing agreement. They have been together for about 15 years. But you might recall that Kenya Airways had a shareholder in KLMF, oh, yeah. which, which, code, which marriage came to an end about two years ago. During the COVID, when Kenya Airways was in real financial trouble or in the doldrums, and they have since been on an up and up. They have been recovering quite impressively, opening new routes, going to new destinations. But you can't fly worldwide or run an airline international unless you have co-chair agreements. They have a co-chair agreement with with SAA, but they also need to be part of Europe. And why do they need Europe, Mutel? Kenya Airways, among other things, moves freshly cut flowers. If you're in Europe and you're buying freshly cut flowers, chances are 35% of them are from Kenya. They, They literally get cut from the farms in Kenya. They get flown more than 10 hours to Europe and they are able to be sold and make somebody's Valentine's dream come true, whatever it is. Therefore, they need these co-chair agreements with airlines like the German airline Lufthansa and, and this co-chair agreement is just to make have access to that platform so that when you book a flight to Europe, you might be booking Kenya Airways but you end up on a Lufthansa flight and you didn't have to talk to Lufthansa. That's what co-chair agreements are about. You don't have to talk to many airlines, you talk to one airline and as long as you get to your destination, I'm sure you don't care what the logo is on the tail of the plane. This is one of those stories. And then Nigeria winning that uh, 11 billion US dollar UK court appeal (laughs) in the failed gas deal. Uh, This is uh, around that collapsed gas processing project that was uh, procured through bribery and fraud. Yeah, PINND, you know, the Malibu oil scandal. This goes back to 2010, when I think good luck Jonathan was president. I'm not quite sure. And the minister, the woman who was Alison Madwek, she, what happened was there was a deal that was awarded, $11 billion deal that was awarded. Nigeria is an oil economy, but even that didn't stop. The, the, the $11 billion deal was awarded fraudulently. And what happened, this UK company went to the court in the UK and say, even though the deal was awarded fraudulently, it is binding. I mean, isn't that bizarre, Mattel? (laughs) Me, being the non-legal person, knows, I know that a contract that's based on illegal activity should be voidable, at least, if not void, completely. But now this company was saying, let's enforce the contract, and they went to court to try and stop the Nigerian government. It started during the day of former president 
President Muhammadu Buhari, who said we can't enforce a contract that's based on fraudulent means or basis. And they were trying, this company trying to get the cause in the UK to enforce it. And fortunately, and good for governance and ESD overall in the world motel, the court in the UK said there's no way you can enforce a contract that was based on fraudulent activities. And this is good for Nigeria, because then they will at least be able to stop the implementation or the enforcement of that deal. And this is what Africa needs, or all emerging economies, that when there is a fraud or an activity of state capture or whatever, the international courts where most of these companies that are involved in these fraudulent activities run to, do not enforce yeah. the, the implementation. All right, our Nigerian President Apollo Tinibu praising the decision as a landmark judgment preventing private firms and corrupt officials from exploiting countries. Uh, Victor Homieswana, thank you again for bringing us some of the best uh, business stories coming out uh, on the continent. Uh, he, of course, is the author of Africa Bounces Back and Marketing and Coordinating Executive Director at the University of Limpopo. The Money Show. Investment School. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by the APSA Africa Financial Markets Index, cultivating growth by providing a clearer understanding of the African markets. APSA is a registered FSP. Getting into our investment school today, and our head teacher is Carl Wales, portfolio manager at Flagship Asset Management. Carl, I'll be looking at the difference between the value and growth investment strategies, how active managers are more likely to outperform at market inflections. Uh, Carl, welcome again to The Money Show. This is sometimes quite a difficult one to explain uh, to uh, people trying to get into investment, especially with all the buzzwords coming from, uh, you know, the US Fed coming from the Saab, the higher for longer interest rates, uh, inflation. Uh, also, uh, we're in a high inflationary environment. So as an investor, you tend to get lost in what you should look at uh, to look for growth at times of chaos. But I'm sure you'll be explaining that to us. Let's first look around the value investing strategy, which is uh, synonymous with guys like Warren Buffett, Benjamin Graham, um, you know, looking for uh, those lower stocks that no one's looking at and then uh, and sitting on your hands basically until you get that, that larger growth. Yes, um, Mateo, I, th- I think uh, the basic premise uh, behind value investing is, is simply to buy shares that are cheap, either relative to their peers or relative to history. And uh, that is a strategy that can work well, um, but it, it but it's also a strategy that can backfire. Um, often uh, those type of shares are cheap for a reason. If you take uh, take many of them, they are um, have poor management teams, the products are approaching obsolescence. So there's always a chance that even though you buy a share that looks cheap, um, it might end up performing worse uh, than a more expensive share. Cheap is always costly, as they say. Uh, looking at these, uh, this particular st- strategy on, on value, um, you know, what, what are those things that you should be looking out for even when you research these companies in order to be on the safe side? Well, um, in terms of valuation, I think the usual um, metrics are are perfect. So low price to earnings ratio, a low price to book ratio, a high dividend yield. Um, and as I said before, uh, relative to uh, to its own history or relative to its peers. 
Um, those, those, those would be the primary uh, metrics I, I would look out for. And I would, however, try and look for above um, average quality businesses that fit those criteria just to avoid the risk. Can you explain you uh, for the benefit of some of our listeners who are not aware uh, or fair with the term PE ratio? So PE ratio is simply calculated by taking the price of a stock, uh, dividing it uh, by 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 its earnings. Uh, the reason why you would do that is because that that gives you an idea of how much earnings power uh, you are buying for your money. Obviously, you would prefer to buy more earnings power than less earnings power. Similar to a bank account, yeah, you would rather earn uh, more interest than less interest for for the money you spend. And what would be a good measure for a P ratio? Well, generally, uh, below ten would would be re- uh, regarded as cheap, but uh, it's 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 hard to place an absolute number for a uh, place an absolute number on it. Um, you, uh, depending on the quality of a business, um, it it may be cheap at at a more expensive multiple uh, than than that one. And do you have any? Unfortunately, though, with with these things, there are no far hard and fast rules. But uh, cheap, cheap relative to to its own history or to its peers is 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 normally the the way to go. And let's put it now against the growth investing outlook. How different is it than uh, than from uh, the value uh, strategy? Vastly different, Matteo. So. Um, Whereas with with value, you you try to buy shares that are on cheap uh, valuations. With uh, growth shares, you try to buy shares that are growing quickly, um, even if they are expensive. And um, the one of the sayings, which is quite well known, it's 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 often misattributed, but, but it was actually said by by um, Albert Einstein, is uh, the eighth one of the world. Uh, be, being compound interest. And that's the premise behind growth investing, really. It's just that if you buy a company, even if it's trading uh, on quite an expensive valuation, if it's growing fast enough, it, um, it can uh, become cheap uh, very quickly. Now, the question that happens at the watering holes in different offices is, um, you know, which one do you choose then during these um, stressful times, high inflation, high interest rates? Do, do you choose a value stock or do you choose a growth stock to, to survive the period? Well, we've been through a very interesting period because up till 2022, uh, we had seen growth outperform and uh, value underperform for an extended period of time. Uh, then in 2022, uh, when we saw inflation uh, rates rise and interest rates uh, rise with them, we, we saw value um, out, outperform for the first time in, in a while. And that's generally uh, because when the interest rates are higher, future earnings get discounted backwards to, to today at a higher rate. However, this year, 2023, there's been another reversal. This um, hype around artificial intelligence has 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 been the um you know the 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 primary thing people have concerned themselves with so we have seen um growth techie stocks outperform again and specifically those ones uh that are in in some way beneficiaries of of this whole ai theme would you say growth and value investing is more positive when you're looking at it from a long-term view 
Uh, I, th- I, th- I think all all investing is 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 better approached from from a, a long term view. I also think it's it's not um, useful to to follow either style slavishly. I, th- I, th- I think you you can own some growth stocks in your portfolio and some value stocks in in your portfolio, and that might be actually the, the best way to um, you, you know to 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 get the uh, an ideal mix. And some of the local examples that you might have in your work of uh, a good value stock and, and a, good, a good growth one, uh, particularly on the JSE and how ha- those have measured up against each other. Well, um, just just in terms of, of, of value, uh, typically would would be things like our traditional banks, uh, for example, the, the APSAs, the First Rands, the Standard Banks, so those stocks all trade on on PE ratios below uh, ten times. Uh, they uh, pay dividend yields, uh, you know, in 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 the mid single digits to high single digits. Something like a, a Capitec would would be more growthy. It's obviously growing other uh, quicker than than the other um, large banks in South Africa, but it trades on a on a premium valuation because it's growing faster. And looking at those digital banks that are new entrants now, would you look at those as growth ones? Because uh, Capitec was once a small uh, overlooked bank. And uh, some say if you had put a thousand rand all those years ago, you would have made uh, quite a pretty penny. Well, a huge, a huge amount of uh, money. I, th- I, th- I think the lowest price that Capitec traded on was was two rand, and the share price is north of one thousand eight hundred rand today. So yeah, you would be sitting very, very pretty indeed. But yeah, it's uh, we we live in a dynamic world. Um, things are changing all the time, and I think there there's a lot of uh, potential money to be made in in owning uh, stocks uh, of disruptors. And then uh, this particular strategy, what are some of the, the cons of, you know, going into value investing? How could you possibly lose your money there? And give us a similar uh, examples for a growth uh, uh, strategy. I think uh, with uh, value investing, as, as, as I said earlier, the, the risk is that uh, a stock trading on a low valuation relative to its own history or relative to its peers is doing so uh, because it deserves to do so, um, and uh, with with without offending anyone that that works for the, this organisation, um, you know, uh, if if you take the banking sector for example, and we were discussing banks earlier, um, First Rand has always traded at a PE premium uh, relative to an APSA, uh, but if you had invested in First Rand, you would have performed better. Than if you had invested in APSA. So that's just an example of, of where something uh, optically trades on a, a cheap valuation, but whereas, uh, but where the fundamentals, um, you know, are such that, that it deserves it to, to trade at a lower price. Maybe I'm, I'm, I'm also like quite a conservative investor, but I'm always worried about what happens when global events happen. Like we're seeing now, uh, with uh, Israel and, 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 and Gaza, with, with Hamas, and uh, earlier on with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, which strategies are, are a better buffer between the two in terms of keeping your, your money to yourself? I think um, if, if you want to uh, defend your portfolio against things like, like this Israel-Palestine um, scenario, for example, you've just got to invest in businesses uh, that have very robust business models uh, 
and where regardless of what happens, they 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 will uh, be likely to maintain their their relevance. And I, I always use examples of of the Coca Colas of the world, the Colgate Palmolives of the world. You know, regardless of how bad things get, uh, you know, people will always need to brush their teeth. They will, uh, you know, like to drink a, drink a Coca Cola. Those aren't necessarily the cheapest shares. Um, I wouldn't classify them as either value or growth shares, but those are probably uh, the the most defensive uh, shares against most scenarios. If you're listening, you're joining us during our investment school. We're looking at the difference between value and growth investment strategies. Our head teacher today, Carl Wales, our portfolio manager at Flagship Asset Management, do join us for this conversation after this. The Money Show. Investment School. Giving you some gems on how to keep your investments safe and how to also grow your investments. Tonight, we're talking the difference between value and growth investment strategies in our investment school. Our head teacher today, Kyle Wales, portfolio manager and at Flagship Asset Management. Now, Kyle, looking at the different ways we could invest through value and growth strategies, some will say ETFs, some will say uh, go to the, the direct route, which is best to do. Do you put uh, your value stocks in, in a fund and and, and hope that uh, gives you uh, some sort of return? Yes. So, uh, I mean, the um, the debate whether you should um, invest using passive ETFs or, or whether you should invest in, in active managers is, is obviously a very old one. I think it's uh, probably best to have a combination um, of each. I, th- I think it's good to have a large exposure of, of, of passive ETFs, but I think one should um, add a, a good selection of asset managers that have proved themselves to be able to outperform um, on, on, on top of that, because that, uh, that, that alpha uh, can, can be a huge source of, of potential return. Um, for for investors, and how much would be would you be paying for that potential re- return, especially with uh, active uh, managers? Uh, is is it a, coming at a higher cost with with the risk being higher as well? Yeah, with uh, w- with active managers, the 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 fees are higher, but um, uh, again, and um, it's it's necessary to choose choose between the right ac- active managers. Um, you know. Um, Unfortunately, the the good managers and the bad managers and 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 the good managers pay their fees back multiple times over. So it's um, it's 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 simply a matter of 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 choosing choosing the right ones to to get value in uh, amongst active space. And what would we have to heed in terms of index investing, especially passive ones? Well, I think one one of the Biggest issues with with index investing, and it's not not something that uh, you know ETF creators like to advertise, is that even though many uh, active managers tend to uh, underperform the, the, their benchmarks, uh, with an ETF you're almost guaranteed to underperform your benchmark, even if it's by a small amount, uh, because they charge fees um, as well. Um, and uh, and another thing to bear in mind with um, with with ETF investing and it's 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 perhaps something that that wouldn't gel well with many people is that you you tend to buy things as they're going up as they're getting more expensive and sell things as they're falling or and as they're getting cheaper as 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 a consequence so it is uh, it can be counterintuitive and it's uh, can I think uh, backfire 
at 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 certain points. And everybody always wants, you know, something that will outperform the market. Uh, not really always attainable, but through active funds, this could be possible. Yes, uh, uh, it's in 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 theory it would be, and and there have been active managers that have outperformed in all markets. Um, I think it's necessary to look for for an active manager that. Um, you know, over time tends to outperform. I, th- I think as as we were just discussing earlier, I think it's essential that people have long-term time horizon and um, it is essential for people to realize that any active manager over short periods of time might um, might underperform his, his benchmarks. But with a good manager, you are looking for someone who um, over long periods of time uh, can deliver alpha. Okay, let's get more of your advice for, for free then. What... Um, you know what balance is between um, the 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 growth and growth and value uh, strategies? Would you balance in your own fund, and would you use active or passive uh, funds to do that? Well, um, I'm I'm a active manager, so so that's my preference. I'm I believe they they pass the market, which which offer more more value than than other parts of the um, market. Um, and and I choose stocks individually uh, myself. For many of your listeners, though, I don't think that's a strategy uh, they they should follow. I, th- I think for many people who don't follow the share market too closely, uh, their their interests are better served by by investing either in active managers or or by using ETFs and not trying uh, to pick stocks themselves. So the passive ones would would allow you to give your your money to um, you know a financial services provider that's into ETFs and they would run that fund for you, uh, while active ones would have you to do your own research, stay close to the markets uh, on a day to day basis. Yes. Which is where the the, the payment differential comes. Uh, what I'm trying to get to is, um, do I invest a lot of my money in the active funds uh, with the hope that I will get a higher return than putting a lot of money in a passive fund where the return won't be as much as I'd like? I would um, I would balance it. So I would um, you know be be fair, fairly um, you know have have equal exposure to to each strategy. I certainly think think each of them has uh, their their benefits and weaknesses, and I think it's um, it's it's silly to um, concentrate uh, your exposure in 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 either direction. Um, as as we were discussing earlier, uh, you know, at at certain times um, it it does pay to invest actively, even if the fees are higher. Um, there in two thousand and nine, two thousand ten, which were periods of market disruption, uh, which you were alluding to earlier, um, active managers as a group outperformed uh, the, the, the index. So it is, um, it it is useful to have active exposure as well as uh, the the passive exposure. So I wouldn't uh, go go one hundred percent in either direction. There's been a lot of talk uh, from the lot of the central banks around the world on interest rates, um, inflation, and how long that's going to take. We've gone into the buzz phrases of higher for longer. And, um, you know, we're in a situation where even consumers are finding it hard um, to find out where their next meal is going to come from in some instances. So in an, in a situation like that, in an economy like that globally, um, you know, how do you balance out your own funds and your own portfolio to make sure that it also stays higher for longer, if you will? 
Well, I think um, at, at at a moment like this, one one has to consider two things. Uh, the the first thing is asset allocation, and and that simply refers to how much of your money you allocate to shares as 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 opposed to to cash or bonds. And um, at at the moment, I, I would be quite conservatively positioned. So I I would have a sizable cash position. Um, because I think uh, there is a great likelihood that that we see um, a recession um, at the beginning of, of of next year, and I do think that um, growth shares, having outperformed, uh, so stock selection, the second issue, that with uh, stock selection, growth stocks having outperformed this year will probably un- underperform next year, and we should see a resurgence in value. Um, as 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 people cotton on onto the fact that that interest rates may stay higher for longer, because uh, that uh, you know will mean, mean people have to discount future earnings at at a higher rate. So it might be late to get into growth uh, stocks, but uh, look at value stocks going into next year. I th- I th- I think that is is probably the way things are going to play out. All right, that was uh, Kyle Wales, Portfolio Manager at Flagship Asset Management, uh, our investment school head teacher today, talking the difference between value and growth investment strategies. Thank you so much, sir.